Well, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you know we're on the theme of evangelism, sharing the gospel with unsaved people, being reminded, as we so often need to be as a church, what is our mission? Why do we exist? Why do we gather together? This is not a means to an end this morning. This is a, a, a preparation for us to go out this week and be a witness to the lost and to be Christ's ambassadors. And so there's a number of things that are on my heart that are bouncing around in my head. In fact, I just read a book this week um, called Evangelism. And it was, uh, just made a huge impact in my own heart and my mind, um, so much so that I want to see if we can get copies for everyone so you could read it, because um, it was really one of the best books ever written. It's not so much about personal evangelism as it is about church evangelism. In other words, how we share Jesus as a church in our community. And the point of the book is how do you develop a culture of evangelism in your church. It was a very, very helpful book. And so stay tuned for that. You might have some reading ahead of you, um, but uh, it will be a great opportunity for us as a church. And so two weeks ago, I talked about the mission, that we are on a mission from God. Last week, I talked about what is the motivation for that mission? What should drive us? And we talked about having the compassion of Christ and ultimately God's heart for the lost, that we would see lost people through God's eyes and we would see what he sees and we would feel what he feels, that we wouldn't just see people for who they're appearing to be, the, you know, our coworker, our secretary, our, you know, the person checking out, uh, checking us out at the Walmart or, you know, um, the, the person that we're, you know, uh, doing burpees next to at the gym or, or uh, you know, the person that's mowing their yard next to your yard or walking their dog down your street, right? Th- th- these are souls that are going to spend eternity somewhere, either in heaven or hell. And we have the privilege, we have the responsibility to communicate truth to them. And so this morning, I want to talk about the one thing that I think hinders us the most from being the witnesses that God has called us to be as Christians. And I want to read this passage, and hopefully you'll figure it out as I go, as I read. But uh, I think we have here some very helpful truth that Paul wrote to his young disciple Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Father, we thank you again for your word. And we ask that as your word is explained um, this morning, that uh, your spirit would illuminate our minds to understand what Paul meant by what he said here to Timothy and, and then how it applies to our lives. Lord, as we're seeking, we're desiring uh, to be more faithful witnesses of, of Christ, to be more bold 
with the gospel that you've entrusted to us. And so, Lord, would you accomplish your work in our hearts and in this church through your word, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I were to come out into the audience this morning with this microphone, which I'm already getting you all nervous, I'm not going to do that, okay? Everybody woke up there for a second, right? Um, If I was to go out there and, and personally interview each one of you and ask you why you don't share the gospel with others the way you know you should or even the way you want to and long to, I'm sure that there would be one answer given more than any other answer. Anyone want to take a guess? What would that answer be? One word. Fear. Exactly. And it's not a fear so much of what people are going to do to us like many of our fellow Christians experience who live in parts of the world where identifying with Christ can cost you your life. It's not that fear. Thankfully, here in our country, we don't have to deal with that, that same level of persecution, at least not yet. But we are still afraid. Well, what are we afraid of? What, what do we fear? We, we fear being rejected, don't we? we? We fear of what people will think of us. We, we fear not knowing what to say. What if they actually engage us in conversation and ask us some question about the Bible or about God or about Adam's belly button and if he had one and, and we don't know the answer to that question. But maybe most of all, I think we fear awkwardness. Awkwardness. I mean, let's face it, bringing up the subject of Jesus, <laughs> other than using him as a cuss word, right? He comes up often in conversations around us at work, in the gym, with our neighbors, at school, right? You, you hear Jesus' name brought up in the conversation as a cuss word used in vain, but bringing up the subject of Jesus, the Holy One, when you're spending time with your family members who are not saved or talking with your neighbors in the front yard or standing in the break room at work with your coworkers, or maybe working out at the gym or eating in the cafeteria with your classmates, it feels awkward. It feels like an awkward intrusion into not just the conversation, but into that relationship altogether, doesn't it? And in fact, we probably have all experienced to some degree how bringing up that subject has changed a relationship or two in our lives, has it not? And so we'd rather just avoid that. And so we don't evangelize. I mean, let's be honest, evangelism is scary. We all know that uncomfortable feeling of being embarrassed, being intimidated to tell others about Christ. We've all chickened out more than once, haven't we? Who's willing to admit? You've chickened out. I've chickened out. Okay, had an opportunity to share the gospel. It was right there in front of me, and it was like a softball, you know, a beach ball lobbed right there, and you could easily hit it out of the park, and you just wimped out. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. I remember the first time I went door-to-door witnessing. Anybody ever gone door-to-door evangelism, right? The old school days, right, where you would, uh, you know, have the, 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 you know, all the visitor visitor cards for the week, right? And on Tuesday night, that was visitation night, and we come to church, and right, you you, you pray over the cards, and you go out and you knock on doors, right? Well, I was a young college student. In fact, I was a freshman at Word of Life Bible Institute, And uh, this institution was passionate about training and equipping us students how to share the gospel. And and so they would just pull stuff on us and and put us in these very awkward situations. It'd kind of be like, you know, just kind of bringing us to the, you know, top of a cliff and then just kind of, oh, sorry, and just kind of bump you off the cliff and you just got to 
go with it, right? And so one Sunday afternoon, I remember they, they loaded us all up in buses and drove us about an hour and a half to Burlington, Vermont. And they dropped us off in these neighborhoods. And they said, hey, we want you just to go around the neighborhood and just knock on doors and uh, introduce yourself as a student from Word of Life Bible Institute and that you wanted to take a moment to talk to them about Jesus. And uh, they gave us some tracks and they said, hey, if they, if, they, if they want to listen, then you give them one of these tracks. If they don't, just see if they'll take one anyway and uh, politely d- dismiss yourself. And, and, and so there you go. And so here we are standing on the street corner, you know, in Burlington, Vermont. And, and I'm like, okay, I can do this. And so I thought I was going to be all, you know, you know, the leader. I can, I can do this. And I'm, I'm brave. And I'm going to be the, I'm going to be the, I'm, I got this, guys. Come on, come with me. We got, let me, I got this first door. And so here we are walking. We were in teams, maybe four or five people. And uh, so I go walking up down the sidewalk. I still remember like it was yesterday, this little white house. And I walk up to the door and literally I'm like, and I turned around and I pushed somebody else in front of me. <laughs> Because I freaked out. I froze. I was scared. And, and so, thankfully, the more we did that, um, we got more comfortable doing that. And then the next thing you know, we found ourselves down in New York City. They started us in Burlington, Vermont. You know, not really too difficult up there. Uh, then they take us to New York City and drop us off out in front of Grand Central Station. No lie. And give us a little paint board, a little easel, and we're supposed to paint this little deal. And as you paint this little deal, the crowd gathers to see what you're up to. And who's this crazy guy? And what's he all about, right? New York City. Um, and, and so people, and then all of a sudden you say, you take a big deep breath, and you say, Lord, help me. And you turn around, and there's a crowd. And you just start preaching to these total strangers on the streets of New York City. And I'm telling you, it was radical. There, there was... It was by far the most intimidating but most exhilarating experience of my life. And I caught the bug, the evangelism bug. And so when I went home on break, I would, on Friday night, I'd go out witnessing. I'd go to where the young people were hanging out, and I'd, I'd, I'd just go talk to them about it. I'd bring my tracks, and I'd just talk to them about Jesus. And uh, I think I told you this a, a little while ago, I, I actually, or a few months back, that I actually wrote my own track because I, I, I thought it would be even better to say, hey, this is something I wrote. I don't know, that'd catch my, you, you wrote that? It's not just handing out some random literature. It's like, hey, this is something I wrote. I want to encourage you to read it. I don't know, there's something personal about that that kind of thought would engage people a little bit more. When I was a youth pastor, one of my favorite things to do was to take students out to do what's called cold turkey evangelism. That's what they were doing at Word of Life. And it wasn't just because it was winter up there. It was, you were just cold turkey, man. You just, you just did it. And um, I would take students out to places either on the street or on campuses and uh, show them how to strike up a conversation with someone and, uh, and how to share the gospel. And my goal was always just to help Students get over the fear and intimidation of sharing the gospel and instill in them a a courage, a confidence. They needed to be bold, unashamed witnesses for Christ. Because, beloved, listen, that's exactly what Christ has called us to be as his followers. Bold and courageous witnesses for him. You are a witness for Christ. I am a witness for Christ. Acts 1.8 says, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. The question is, are you a good witness or a bad witness? Are you a brave witness? Are you a bold witness? Or are you a timid witness? I love the example of the apostles in the book of Acts when they were told that they were no longer to preach the gospel. They were arrested and warned if they were caught preaching the gospel again, they would be arrested and maybe worse, killed. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, they got together and prayed. They had a prayer meeting. And they said this, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. 
And then verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with what? Remember? Boldness. By the way, there's a connection between prayer, prayerfulness, and boldness. If you lack boldness, how about pray about it? Why not ask the Lord to grant you boldness? In fact, the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest of Christ's followers, probably the guy you would never think would struggle with boldness, he asked people to pray for boldness for him. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So here's the Apostle Paul asking people to pray for him that he would be bold, that he would have boldness to preach the gospel, to share Christ. Listen, if the Apostle Paul needed prayer to be bold, how much more do we need somebody praying for us? Or how about just praying for ourselves that we will be bold? Well, here in 2 Timothy, Paul was calling Timothy to, a, to be a bold, unashamed witness for Christ. As you probably know, this is the last letter that Paul penned before he died in which he was handing off the gospel baton to his beloved disciple, and Paul was concerned about something. Paul knew that Timothy had a tendency towards what? Timidity. That he, he, was, he was timid or fearful by nature. Notice verse 7, the verse that comes right before our passage. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Or in some of your translations, it might say fear. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. So Paul, I think, was exhorting Timothy here. He knew Timothy's tendency to be fearful. And granted, he was a young man who was in a very challenging situation. He had been put in, in, in uh, leadership of a church that had just kind of um, imploded and had leaders defecting from the faith and they turned become false teachers and leading people astray. And Paul came in and cleaned house and left Timothy to kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And he was the, the new kid on the block and he was a lot younger than these other guys. And, and so, uh, granted, I can appreciate him being a little nervous and a little timid and and, and, and feeling awkward. But Paul knew that more than anything, Timothy needed to be encouraged and challenged to fearlessly and unashamedly stand and suffer for the truth of the gospel. And I think the, the main idea in these verses is not being ashamed. Notice Paul mentions this three times, verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, of his prisoner. Verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. And then look at verse 16, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So this is the theme here, this idea of being unashamed for the gospel. Now, uh, I think a word that, that aptly describes the kind of attitude or commitment that Paul was calling Timothy to is, is, is a modern-day word, gutsy. Gutsy. We're, we're familiar with, with that expression. We, 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 we hear it in the context of, you know, lots of things. That was a gutsy move. That was a gutsy play. That was a gutsy performance. That was a gutsy decision. In other words, it took a lot of guts to do that. You had to be bold. You had to be courageous. And so Paul was telling Timothy, 
to be gutsy for the gospel. And what we see here in these verses, I think, are reasons to be gutsy for the gospel. Six reasons, specifically, that Paul gave to inspire and motivate Timothy and us to be gutsy for the gospel. And so hopefully you have the outline in front of you and you can follow these reasons along with me as we go through this text. And, and um, just so you know, when we originally walked our way through this years ago, when we taught through First and Second Timothy and Titus, I actually did four messages on this passage. And so, just so you know, we're not going to be here until 2 o'clock this afternoon, okay? But uh, I'm going to be skimming over a lot of things here that we could go deeper into. But I just want to give us kind of an overview of this passage and hopefully glean the guts, if you will, to, 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 um, to, to get the guts out of this passage that will help us be bold, unashamed witnesses for Christ and overcome the fear of what people are going to think of us, the fear of rejection, the fear of not knowing what to say, the fear of making a conversation or relationship awkward. Number one, what's the first reason? We should be gutsy for the gospel because we have been called to suffer for the gospel. We've been called to suffer for the gospel. Verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Don't be embarrassed, in other words, to let others know you're a Christian or to associate with other Christians. And Paul exhorted Timothy here to not be ashamed of two things. Number one, Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of Christ and don't be ashamed of him, Paul. Notice he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That word testimony in the Greek is the word marturion, where we get the word martyr. Back then, the word was simply translated testimony or witness. Don't be ashamed of the witness or the testimony of Christ. In other words, don't be reluctant to witness to others about Christ to tell others about Christ. I think it's interesting that since so many early Christians paid for their witness with their lives, eventually the word martyr took on the meaning of dying for the cause of Christ. Originally, it simply meant being a witness. That if you were a witness for Christ, you were a marturion, you were a martyr. Well, now today we know, we only think of one thing when we think about a martyr, somebody who died for the cause of Christ. So he tells him, don't be ashamed of the Lord, but don't also don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. At this time of writing this letter, Paul was shackled in a dark, dank dungeon, what was called a Mamertine prison there in Rome. He was awaiting to be executed. It was just a matter of time. He knew before Nero would hand down the judgment for him to have his head chopped off. But he didn't view himself as a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Nero, but a prisoner of Christ. Notice he says, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, capital H, Christ's prisoner. I'm the Lord's bond servant. I'm the Lord's slave. And Paul had already seen how his previous imprisonments had been used by God to advance the gospel in ways that would have not been possible if he had been free. Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 14, talking about the whole praetorian guard. This is the, like the secret service, if you will, of, of, the, of the Caesar of the day. Nero's secret service. They all heard the gospel because they all had to guard Paul. And so every time he was chained up to a new guard, I mean, the, the question is, who was, who was the prisoner at that point? Was it Paul or was it the guard? Because they were going to hear the gospel from the Apostle Paul. And even Nero's own family members, it says later on in Philippians, uh, heard the gospel because of Paul's imprisonment. Nevertheless, Paul knew that for Timothy to identify with him would mean certain persecution and even death, possibly. There's a reason why 
so many of Paul's friends and co-workers had deserted him. And we're going to see that later in this passage. They didn't want to be associated with Paul and wind up in prison too or, or worse, dead. And so they turned away from him. They abandoned him. And so Paul didn't want Timothy to be one more co-worker, co-laborer, so-called friend who abandoned Paul when he needed him the most. Notice what he says here, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Paul's inviting Timothy here to suffer hardship alongside him, to be willing to be mistreated and abused and, and, and arrested and imprisoned and even beheaded. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 5, he says, be sober in all things, endure hardship. Paul wanted Timothy to realize that suffering was part of the territory. It was, it was a normal, natural part of being a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself endured unimaginable suffering. And he warned those who committed their lives to follow him and to speak out for him and to witness for him that they would experience suffering and persecution too. Remember in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are, were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. We know that all of Jesus' disciples, except for John, died a martyr's Death. They all got killed for being a witness for Christ. From the moment that Paul met Jesus, he experienced all sorts of suffering and persecution. Christians have been called to suffer. It's not a matter of if you'll be persecuted, but when you'll be persecuted and how you'll be persecuted. When a person commits their life to Christ... They're committing, you're committing yourself to a life of suffering and persecution. You're just asking to be rejected by the world. When you accept Christ, when you receive Christ, you're also accepting the fact that you will be rejected by the world. That's just the way it is. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we're rejected or ridiculed or criticized because of our faith in Christ. In fact, we should expect it. 2 Timothy 3.12. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. And so when you live a godly life in front of your family, your fellow students, your teachers, your co-workers, your neighbors, you should expect some kind of hostility in some form or another. And when you bring up the gospel, it is offensive. It, 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 you're, you're confronting, even in the most loving possible way, even if you're the most gracious person on the planet, you're confronting their sin. And you're testifying to their need of repentance. And that oftentimes is resented. You may not be put in prison, but you may suffer in other ways like losing a friend or losing a customer or being bypassed for a promotion, maybe getting a lower grade on a test because you've raised your hand in class and disagreed with your professor about his views on evolution or something like that. And it may be as the world's hatred of the gospel escalates that the day will come, even here in America, where we as believers will be physically persecuted tortured, maybe even put in jail. It's happening in other countries already, in Europe, in Canada. Pastors who 
get up and preach the Bible are being arrested and put in jail because their views, what they're teaching is not politically correct. And so the point here is that we should be gutsy for the gospel because we've been called to suffer for the gospel, but to do it with joy, with gladness, considering it a distinct honor to suffer for Christ. And again, the apostles are a great example for us when they were arrested and then beaten for sharing the gospel. Listen to how they responded in Acts chapter 5, verse 40. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, all discouraged and bummed out because they got whipped for Jesus. No, it says they went out on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Wow, what an example. If that won't make you gutsy, right, for the gospel, I don't know it will. They considered it an honor to suffer for the Lord. And so we need to understand that we've been called to suffer. And so if you think, well, I'm going to figure out a way to talk about Jesus with all of these unbelievers in my life that I'm building relations with, and they're all still going to like me. <laughs> I'm just going to pop your, burst your balloon right now. It's, it's not going to happen. It is going to create some tension. It is going to create some opposition. But hopefully it's not how you're sharing it, it's what you're sharing. In other words, don't be a jerk with the gospel. And most of the time, people get offended, not by the gospel itself, but how we come across. We come across like jerks. And it's because we're not seeing these people like God sees them. We don't have compassion for them the way God has compassion for them. But the truth itself, even when spoken with the greatest winsomeness, will likely cause offense. Will create awkwardness in the gym, in your backyard, around the dinner table at Thanksgiving with your unsaved friends or family members, at your work, in the elevator, wherever you are, it's going to create awkwardness. But that's okay. Paul says, don't be ashamed of that. Don't feel bad about that. That's part of the territory. Number two, we should be gutsy for the gospel because we've been gloriously saved through the power of the gospel. We should be gutsy for the gospel because we've been gloriously saved through the power of the gospel. Notice verse 8. He says, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. In other words, God's power is demonstrated in our salvation and by the transformation that he accomplishes in our lives through the gospel. Remember Romans 1.16? Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God. The gospel is the good news of what God does to save us from our sin. Notice he says in verse 9, who according to the power of God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's a mouthful. This is one of those passages where you get the sense that Paul was so gripped with the sheer grandeur of the gospel, that he couldn't contain himself. And what he does in these two verses is he provided, uh, provided a, a miniature theology, a theology lesson on the doctrine of salvation. And he spells out the basic truths of salvation that should motivate every one of us who have experienced God's sovereign grace to be a faithful and courageous witness for their Savior, Jesus Christ, who has rescued us from, from sin and death and hell. 
What are these fundamental doctrines? Well, you have the doctrine of election or predestination. He says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. It's a reference to unconditional election. Not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This is a sovereign grace of God in our lives from all eternity. This is talking about his foreknowledge that he predestined us to be saved. So we've got the doctrine of election, predestination. You've got the incarnation. Notice he says, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is granted in us Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. This is the incarnation. Before time began, God planned out the gospel, the good news of salvation that would happen through Christ, and then he revealed Christ in time. He revealed the gospel to the personal work of Christ. God became a man and proclaimed the good news of salvation, and then died, was buried, rose again from the dead to accomplish the salvation promised in the gospel. So you've got election or predestination, you've got the incarnation, you've also got the crucifixion. Notice he says, who abolished death. In other words, his death killed death. We saw the death of death and the death of Christ. Christ's death destroyed the power of death. It rendered death inoperative. It doesn't work anymore. His, his death took away the fear of death. It held us all bond, in bondage. And so now we have the hope of eternal life. And that's the last fundamental of the gospel or basic truth of the gospel is the resurrection. Notice the end of verse 10, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In the Old Testament, things were kind of fuzzy. People's view of life after death, they, they had the hope of heaven, but they didn't understand it all clearly. But now that Christ has come, we have a much, much greater light on the subject. He's brought to light this subject. We, we know that the moment a believer dies, their spirit goes immediately to be with the Lord in heaven. Where they experience life and immortality, our, our present body decays and, and dies, but in heaven, we will receive a glorified body that will never experience decay, never die. It's, it will be incorruptible, it will be imperishable. Again, we may suffer like Paul to the point of death, but we will live on forever according to the promise of eternal life in the gospel. When you think about it, it's the worst, the, what's the worst someone can do to you? All they can do is kill you. I mean, that's the worst they could do to you. And that's a good thing if you're a Christian because then you get to go to heaven, right? I mean, what, what could make us more gutsy for the gospel than that? You're just helping me get to Jesus faster. What do you have to be fearful of? What do you need to be ashamed of? See, the power... And the glory of the gospel should inspire and motivate us to suffer for it. We, we should consider it an awesome privilege to suffer for such a glorious gospel. A gospel that we have been gloriously saved by. And we're part of this great eternal plan that God ordained before the world began. Listen, if you're not excited about your salvation... You're never going to be excited about wanting to tell anybody else how they can be saved. That's really what it comes down to. I might even say that trumps fear as the ultimate reason why Christians don't share their faith. Is they don't, they're not excited about their salvation. I mean, you think about this, that, that, that we, John Piper says this so well, we praise what we prize. In other words, whatever it is we prize in life, we, we talk about it all the time. And it's not a fearful thing. I, I, I don't get nervous or embarrassed or intimidated to talk about snow skiing because I love snow skiing. 
And I'll talk about that with anybody, and it's no big deal. I'm going to talk about it. Or I don't, uh, if I ate at a good restaurant, I thought, wow, that's a great new restaurant. I want to tell somebody they need to go eat there. That's not intimidating. That's not embarrassing, right? It's not scary to talk about my wife with someone, right? If, I, if I'm excited about my wife and, man, what a great wife the Lord has blessed me. I'm going to, it's not scary. It's not intimidating. Whatever it is that we prize, whether it's our stuff, your your new car, you know, your new house, you know, your new whatever, you talk about those things because we're excited about those things. I've seen people from this church go to a ball game and I've seen more emotion coming out of them at a ball game than I've ever seen sitting here in church. And I'm like, okay, we're cheering for a baseball game, which is fine. That's great. Let's cheer. But where's the excitement, the energy when it comes to worshiping the Lord? I think Paul's point is, do you realize, Timothy, how great your salvation is? Because if you realize how, ex- how great it is, you'll be so excited. I can't believe that I'm that my life's been transformed by the gospel, and I want to I tell everybody about it. But we're just more like, yeah, whatever, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm saved, I'm, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to go to church this Sunday and hang out with people because it's comfortable, it's safe, and we all believe the same things, we all agree on the same things, and it's not awkward here, so this is, I feel, I like, I like being here because it's not awkward. And I'll just kind of survive the week out there in the awkward world and then I'll run back to church where I feel safe again. We need to be gutsy for the gospel because we've been gloriously saved by the power of the gospel. Number three, we should be gutsy for the gospel because we've been appointed to proclaim the gospel. We should be gutsy for the gospel because we have been appointed to proclaim the gospel. Verse 11, he says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. We all know God appointed Paul to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile world. And as God's messenger, he was divinely empowered and equipped for this unique task as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he used three terms to describe his task. He was a preacher or a herald. This was the official messenger of the king whose job it was to carry important news from the king's court and proclaim it throughout the land. He was an apostle. This was the one chosen and sent by Jesus Christ himself to speak on Christ's behalf. And he was a teacher, he says. His task was not just to help people come to know Christ, but to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, right? Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. He was explaining truth so others could understand and apply their lives. This, this book that I just read this week on evangelism says that part of evangelism is teaching the truth of the gospel. That, that it's not, very rarely will we sit down and have an opportunity to preach the whole gospel or share the whole gospel message in one sitting with a person. In fact, sometimes that's not recommended. You think, okay, here's my new neighbor. He just moved into town. First opportunity I get, I'm going to hit him hard with the gospel. No, how about befriending him first? How about building a relationship with him first? How about weaving the truths about who God is and who we are and what Christ has done and what he expects of us? How about weaving those truths into conversations before ever just saying, hey, you got five minutes, I can sit down and show you this thing? not saying it's wrong to do that. To, to... Point is, we need to be teaching the truths of the gospel, and it may take weeks, months, years, and guess what? Oftentimes, it takes multiple people in someone's life. Everybody's kind of teaching them the gospel. All the Christians in his life, he's teaching them the gospel until he finally gets it and understands it. Paul was passionate about the gospel. He did everything possible to proclaim the gospel to as many people as possible, and we should do the same thing. We need to understand that we, like Paul, have been appointed, assigned, if you will, to proclaim 
the gospel. And we should do it eagerly. We should do it willingly, making whatever sacrifices it takes to reach as wide an audience as possible. Number four, we should be gutsy for the gospel because we're absolutely convinced that our life is secure along with the gospel. We should be gusty for the gospel because we are absolutely convinced that our life is secure along with the gospel. I love this, verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, Paul says, for I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. So Paul's appealing to his own example here and saying, hey, Timothy, just so you know, I'm not ashamed. I'm not afraid to preach the gospel in a hostile setting. Why? Because I'm completely confident that God has sealed my future glory in heaven. That's what made him so bold. That he had entrusted his entire life and destiny to God. And he was modeling to Timothy the kind of confidence that he needed to have, knowing that his life was perfectly safe in the hands of God. He says, I know whom I have believed. Paul was referring to his, his personal intimate relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He knew he had an advocate interceding for him at the right hand of God in heaven, and that gave him the confidence that nothing could ever separate him from God. And that he was able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Check this out. What is Paul saying here? In the same way that God had entrusted the gospel to Paul for safekeeping, Paul had entrusted his soul to God for safekeeping. How's that for a trade? You, you entrust the gospel to me, God. I'll keep it safe. I'm going to entrust my life to you, and I'm trusting you're going to keep me safe. And so even though he was suffering greatly, he knew his salvation was secure, and so was the ultimate triumph of the gospel. No matter how it, things looked, that here he was in prison about to get beheaded, he knew the gospel was going to conquer, was going to triumph. That he and the gospel would be vindicated in the end. Notice he says, whom I've entrusted to him until that day. That day. One of Paul's favorite expressions refers to the coming of Christ, particularly the day when every believer will stand before the judgment seat, the beam seat of Christ, and give an account of their service. And our work in advancing the gospel will be, will be evaluated, will be tested and rewarded accordingly. And because of his faithful ministry of the gospel, Paul greatly anticipated his future reward. And so we should be gutsy for the gospel because we are absolutely convinced that our life is secure in Christ. Nothing can ever separate us from him. And someday he'll reward our faithfulness to the gospel. Number five, we should be gutsy for the gospel because we've been entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel. We should be gutsy for the gospel because we've been entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel. I love verses 13 and 14. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me and in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So Paul made a double appeal here to Timothy to preserve and protect the gospel that had been passed on to him for safekeeping. And Paul gave two commands here, retain, verse 13, and guard, verse 14. He basically said the same thing twice for emphasis. He explained what Timothy was to do and how Timothy was to do it. First of all, verse 13, he was to stick to the standard with Christ's persona. Let me explain that. Stick to the standard with Christ's persona. Verse 13, retain the standard of sound words. Hold fast, keep a handle on, don't lose grip, maintain, preserve. That's the idea of the standard of sound words, which you've heard from me. Paul gave him a standard, a model, a pattern, an example, if you will. This was a word used for an artist's sketch that he would sketch out before he made the his masterpiece or a writer's outline, just kind of put a little skeleton outline and then you fill it in and, or, or an architect's blueprint. And again, what, are the, what is the purpose of all these 
little standards, the, the sketch and the outline and the blueprint. It, it's that when you get to painting the picture or writing the book or building the house, it, it gives you a plan that sets the parameters to follow to ensure that the end product looks like it's supposed to look. It turns out right. And Paul says, I gave you a standard of sound words. Which, by the way, is a theme running throughout the pastoral epistles here, the whole idea of sound doctrine, which you've heard from me. Timothy was to view what Paul had taught him as the sketch or the outline or the blueprint of what he was to teach. In other words, Timothy, don't deviate from the plans, man. Stay within the guidelines. Color within the lines. Don't get off course. Don't botch up the gospel. Don't water down the gospel so it sounds less offensive, less demanding. Or maybe making it sound more relevant. You know as well as I do, some people avoid using certain words like sin and wrath or hell. Or they leave out repentance as a requirement of salvation alongside faith. Why? Because... Those are offensive words. Instead of commanding sinners who are facing the wrath of God to repent and believe, some end up just coaxing people who are struggling in life to consider inviting Jesus into their lives to be their friend, to be their guide. Others go so far as to distort the gospel, right, by making people think that putting their faith in Jesus is the key to them becoming healthy and wealthy. So it's no wonder that Paul commanded Timothy to stick to the standard of sound words which he had passed on to him. But notice that Paul not only emphasized what Timothy was to hold on to, but also how he was to hold on to him. The attitude, don't miss this, the attitude with which we maintain the gospel is equally important to the gospel itself. Notice he says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Unfortunately, some who are committed to upholding the truth of God's word, they do it abrasively. They do it adversarially. They come across critical. They come across judgmental. They're, they're, they're ungracious. They're unloving. And when someone has a passion to defend the truth, sometimes they can be rude. Sometimes they can be argumentative. But he says, no, maintain it in the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus. We, we were to hold to the truth with a confident attitude, but also a loving attitude. We must speak the truth in what? Love, Ephesians 4.15. We need to be compassionate and kind to unbelievers who have never been taught the truth. They don't know any better. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So the Lord's bondservant, if that's what we are, we need to reflect the persona of the Lord. It's counterproductive to proclaim and defend the truth about Christ with an unchristlike attitude. And we end up doing more harm than good. And we drive people away from the gospel rather than draw them closer. And so we need to stick to the standard, but we need to stick to it in a Christ-like way. Notice he also says that we're to safeguard the stewardship with the Spirit's power. Paul takes it a step further in verse 14. Not only was Timothy to maintain the standard himself, he was responsible to guard it against those who might try to steal it or destroy it. That word guard there obviously means to keep something safe, something secure to keep careful watch over something so it doesn't get stolen, doesn't get contaminated, doesn't get destroyed. He likens the 
the truth of the gospel to a treasure. This is a banking term that refers to money deposited in a bank for safekeeping. We, we entrust our stuff to banks, don't we? And, uh, you know, important documents, our savings, right? And it's their job to keep them safe. That's why they have guards, and that's why they have surveillance cameras and alarm systems, and on and on it goes. In a similar way, Paul had entrusted Timothy with the most important, valuable thing in the world, and that was the gospel. And it was Timothy's solemn duty to protect it and keep it safe and make sure it got passed on to the next generation completely intact. By the way, that's what we're doing every Sunday, every Wednesday night in our children's ministry, in our student ministry. We're passing on the gospel, I trust, intact to the next generation. That's what's happening right now at camp. The gospel is being passed on to the next generation. But notice, this guarding must be done through who? Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul wanted Timothy to remember that the same Holy Spirit who inspired and preserves the Word lives inside of him. And the only way he would be successful in guarding and defending the gospel was with the Spirit's help. And again, this is so helpful when, it, when we think about boldness in sharing the gospel. You're not going to be bold in and of yourself. Granted, some of us are more bold in our personalities than others, more outgoing, more comfortable just striking up conversations with people. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us and emboldens us to speak and to stand for the truth. And so we need to live, we need to minister, we need to have gospel conversations in complete reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul used the same word here in verse 14 to exhort Timothy to guard what had been entrusted to him as he did in verse 12 to explain the conviction that God would guard what he had entrusted to him. Again, I think this is so encouraging. In essence, what God is saying to us in this verse is that you take care of the gospel and I'll take care of you. I mean, that'll make you gutsy for the gospel. (laughs) You take care of the gospel, Ken, and I'll take care of you. And when we entrust ourselves to God, he'll not only guard us, but he will help us guard what's been entrusted to us. And then number six, just really quick, just an example here. We should be gutsy for the gospel because we have been preceded by others who've been gutsy for the gospel. Since the beginning of time, there have been faithful believers who have boldly and unashamedly gone before us and suffered unspeakable things for the sake of the gospel. Hebrews 11 and 12, the hall of faith, for example. Well, we have a name here. It's kind of hard to pronounce. Onesiphorus. He's just one in that great cloud of witnesses or examples who should motivate us to be gutsy for the gospel. Notice what Paul says, you were aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, they deserted me. And he, again, it's likely that some of the leading Christians in Asia who'd been converted and discipled under Paul's ministry had been invited to Rome to testify on his behalf. You would have think they, they, they would have rushed to his defense, considering had an honor to take a, the witness stand for the Apostle Paul before Nero. But once they heard that he'd been arrested and imprisoned, he was waiting to be executed, these cowardly Christians cut their ties with Paul and forsook him when, when he needed them the most. And I think the fact that no one dared to testify on Paul's behalf 
proves how real and terrifying the threat of Nero's persecution must have been in those days. That no one wanted anything to do with him. Because they knew anyone who, could, who contacted Paul would no doubt be marked out as a sympathizer to the cause of Christ and possibly arrested and even executed along with him. He names two guys, Phagellus and Hermogenes. Again, we don't know anything about these guys. They were probably former colleagues who had served alongside Paul and Timothy, but had now disassociated themselves from Paul, deserted him in his time of greatest need. And it's no wonder that Paul was longing for Timothy to come. That's why he was writing this letter, Come see me before I die. He was one of the faithful few who hadn't deserted him yet. And so he's essentially saying, Hey, Timothy, don't be like those guys who turn their back on me, stand with me, suffer with me, fight with me, run with me, keep the faith with me. And oh, by the way, be like Onesiphorus. Because unlike Phygelus and Hermogenes, who purposely avoided associating with Paul, Onesiphorus zealously sought me out to minister to me without fear or shame. He was unfazed by the threat of persecution and possible execution. He put his own life at risk to serve me in any way it could. And that's why Paul says, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from, that, from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. In other words, Onesiphorus and his family were from the church of Ephesus. Timothy knew them personally. And he's asking God here, he said, I prayed that God would grant Mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. Why? Because Onesiphorus had shown mercy to Paul. And God is merciful to those who are merciful, it says in Matthew 5, 7. And so Paul was praying that God would show mercy and compassion on him in his time of need. And I think the reason that Paul prayed that God would have mercy on Onesiphorus' household would be because they were separated from him either by distance or by death. Think about this for a second. He may have been asking God just to show mercy on his family because he knew how difficult it was when, 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 when the husband's away, when the dad's away, right? It's difficult. Or he may, it may have been that it had even cost them the life of their husband and father for him to go find Paul. We don't know for sure. But if that was the case, what a poignant example this was for Timothy to follow. this man who had been killed for ministering to Paul. Listen, there's lots of things that take guts in life, but how about being willing to be burned alive rather than to deny the gospel? Let me just close with this illustration. I'm sure most of you are aware of the Queen of England back in the 1500s known as Bloody Mary. It's more than just a drink you can order. It was an actual person that is named after Bloody Mary. And she was the Queen of England and she wanted to bring the Church of England back under the Roman Church. They had been liberated, if you will, through the Protestant Reformation. And when Mary took the throne, she was sympathetic to Catholicism and so she wanted the Church to go back under uh, Catholic rule, and uh, there were a group of pastors who served in the Church of England at the time during the Protestant Reformation, and they fought her efforts tooth and nail. They were unwilling to compromise their convictions regarding the gospel. And she had over 250 of these guys burned at the stake. Two of them were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And on the appointed day of their death, they were both led from prison and chained back to back to the stake. A bag of gunpowder was tied around each of their necks and sticks were piled all around them and the fire was lit at Ridley's feet and it began to burn up his legs. And that's when Latimer who was 15 years his senior, cried out to his younger friend. This is what he said. 
quote, be of good comfort, Brother Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. I think what Latimer said to Ridley is essentially what Paul was saying to Timothy here in verses 7 through 18. He was exhorting Timothy and he was exhorting us to play the man, women included. (laughs) To man up, play the man. And if we do, play the man. By God's grace, we may light a candle in the Lake Conroe area that will never be put out. Even as their candle is still burning to this day. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the example of Paul and Timothy and just how practical these ancient exhortations are to us today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves in this passage, that we tend to be timid when it comes to sharing the gospel. We, we tend to be ashamed. And uh, Lord, there are so many reasons for us to to be gutsy when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. And so, Lord, would you stimulate us? Would you inspire us? Would you motivate us, Lord, to put into practice these truths today? And this week, would you grant us opportunities just to make friends with unbelievers and to weave, begin weaving biblical truth into our conversations with them? And not just hit them over the head with the Bible and just, just kind of throw up the gospel in their face, um, Lord, but that we would be strategic. And uh, Lord, ultimately, you would be stirring the hearts of people um, in our neighborhoods and at our schools and at our workplaces, Lord, the places we frequent. Lord, you'd be stirring their hearts. You would be working in their hearts, preparing them for us to arrive with hope and with help with truth from your word. Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to not be afraid. Lord, help us to remember um, that our lives are secure in Christ. And no matter what people say or do or think, it ultimately doesn't matter because nothing can separate us from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.